On today's Silverfish podcast, David Laskin talks about his new book, The Long Way Home, An American Journey from Ellis Island to the Great War. And we're live. Okay. My name's Carl Eckler. I'm here with the author, David Laskin. I understand some of your main interests are meteorology and history. Those would be two. Yep. Basically, I have a background in history and literature, and um, I think I've never really graduated from college, and that I've always been pursuing those two and trying to combine them. The history side, I think, has predominated in the last couple of books, and my focus really has been trying to tell the stories of ordinary people who get caught up in cataclysms or historic events beyond their control, often beyond their comprehension, and what happens to them. So, meteorology, you mentioned, that was my previous book, The Children's Blizzard, was about a storm that hit the upper Midwest in 1888 and killed a lot of school children on their way home from school. This is a pioneering period in Nebraska and the Dakotas, an historic event. Um, so basically, I was writing there mostly about immigrants, people from Norway, Sweden, Germany, Russia, who came to the prairie as homesteaders and um, were, their lives were changed forever when the storm came. So very that book was called The Children's Blizzard, very neatly brought together my obsession with weather and my abiding interest in history. So that's, that's the previous book. And the book we're going to be talking on mostly today is The Long Way Home, An American Journey from Ellis Island to the Great War, as the title suggests. It's a book about the immigrant experience in the First World War. And basically, I see it really as an outgrowth of the children's blizzard. That book, Immigrants and Weather, this book, Immigrants and War. So there's really a common thread there. And my approach is fairly similar, too, in that... The way I tell the immigrant experience in the war, the stories of Irish-Americans, Jewish-Americans, uh, German-Americans, of course, Italian and Polish, Norwegian and Slovak-Americans, is by focusing on 12 individual men. So I did a lot of research, tracked down many, many stories, and then I boiled it down to 12. And I followed them from their childhoods in Europe to their immigration stories across the ocean through Ellis Island and then took them right through to the trenches. So very much a book of history, very much a book of human interest. Less weather in that book. Although I understand the weather in France was pretty pretty bad all those years. Yeah, you know, I think people do often tend to remember bad weather more than they remember good weather. So it seemed like, you know, the U.S. was really only in the thick of the action, basically, from April 1918 till the armistice on November 11th, 1918. So there was a little bit of nice spring weather, but basically the battles that I write about are either uh, the in the summer, mostly July 1918, the Battle of the Ain Marne, hot as blazes, and um, men um, have many descriptions of men in wheat fields just sweating bullets while artillery is going off all around them, so really uncomfortable, brutal conditions. And then, of course, the Battle of the Meuse-Argonne, which ended the war that started at the end of September 1918, and as I said, went right up to the armistice. Yeah, rain, mud, snow, cold, miserable, fog. I think the worst description I read was a combination of 
rain and poison gas that collected in this valley where um, one of my guys that I was writing about was stationed. Um, and I think it was, I think the French name is Bois de Feuilly, which means like wood, woods of the wood sprites or fairies or something, but it was really hell on earth. So yes, weather does enter in, um, but as a background, not as a major player. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the major players? Yeah. Um, I'd like to start by talking about two, because as I said, there are 12 guys in the book, and two of them actually met. This is an incredible story for me. Um, so Tony Piero, an Italian-American, was 110 when I met him, and Samuel Goldberg, a Jewish-American, was 106 when I met him. And I never expected when I embarked on this project to be interviewing World War I veterans. We're talking about men who served when Woodrow Wilson was commander-in-chief. Um, but I tracked them down. At the time I was writing the book, there were about a dozen American doughboys who were surviving. Now we're just down to one, Frank Buckles, who lives in West Virginia. So Tony and, and um, Sam Goldberg were just fascinating interviews. Um, Tony saw a lot of action, didn't talk about it much, but um, did talk about um, a horse that he was very attached to. His job, he was in charge of um, an officer's horse, and he had a cart, and he used that cart to bring artillery. He was in the artillery of the All-American Division. He used that cart to bring um, artillery shells to the front and then dead bodies back from the front. Um, gruesome job, really. Um, and Tony didn't talk much about moving the bodies, but he did talk about the horse, and the horse actually was killed by an exploding German shell. And um, Tony was aware that that horse saved his life. If the, if, the, if the horse hadn't taken the impact of the shell, it would have killed him. And, you know, it's it seems sort of odd. There's a lot of stuff that I read about guys really... Um, getting attached to their horses, or sometimes there was a mascot of a dog that was attached to a unit, and you think, geez, you know, millions of men were dying. But I can sort of relate to that animal attachment as just being, bringing the tragedy of war to a really, really fundamental level, that, that, that level that really touches your heart. So, um, so Tony talked about the horse a little bit. And the other thing that I found really charming and heartwarming as he talked a lot about his French girlfriend. This is, you know, we're taking 90 years back. He, he fell in love with this French girl named Madalena, and they didn't get married. He actually came back, came back to the States and married his, his uh, sweetheart from Swampscott, but never forgot Madalena. So that was very, very touching to me. Goldberg, an interesting guy, sharp as a tech, remembered everything. Photographic memory, which he retained in toto at the age of 106, talked to me about um, his grandmother telling him about a pogrom in Russia when Jews were being killed in the streets of their town, the smell of steerage when he was coming across as a boy, but also some good memories of, of, of steerage. He said he kind of ran around the ship and, and some of the officers thought he was cute and gave him ice cream, so it wasn't all hell. Hated his father, very bitter against his father all his life. Years later, talking about that goddamn father of mine. So that really struck me as, wow, you know, no forgiveness all those years later. So Goldberg actually ended up in the cavalry 
he was advised when he enlisted um, that he'd see less action in the cavalry, and that was good advice because he never left the States. He patrolled the Mexican border, which obviously was a non-existent front in the war. And um, But he, he became a man in the Army and uh, was very proud of his friendships. Didn't talk much about how it Americanized him, but I think that was implicit. I think these were immigrant kids who faced a lot of discrimination. And in Tony's case, Tony Piero's case, um, uh, some abuse. He was called a wop on the chow line when he asked for an extra piece of meat. He was really insulted by that and very angry. Um, but identified very strongly with the U.S. And I would argue, and one of the great themes in the book is that this experience of fighting for America with America was an intensely Americanizing experience for all the guys. So those are two. Those are two of the, the ones that I met. I, I guess the third I would bring up that I became really attached to was m one of my other Italian-Americans named Epifanio Affetato. came from the south of Italy, very poor, very superstitious region, um, and just seemed like a really, really nice guy. And part of the reason I said that is that I became quite close to his son and also to his two of his grandsons, who I'm still close with and still remain in close contact with. They clearly revered, well, their grandfather or father um, felt that he was very brave, very lucky, um, very basic kind of guy. He worked for the sanitation department in New York. And... Um, when he came to the States, he was 17 years old, and he really believed the streets were paved for gold, paved with gold. And when he went out the first morning, after being processed at Ellis Island, his dad said, well, where are you going, Epifanio? Well, I'm going out to look for gold. So he really, he, you know, I mean, it's kind of a joke, but, but he believed it. His life was saved by an axe. He picked up an axe that belonged to another soldier. He was outraged, you know, being a poor Italian kid, that anybody would... Um, not treat their tools or their weapons properly. And the story goes, he um, was relieving himself during an attack, and uh, a machine gun bullet ricocheted off the axe when he had his pants around his legs. It saved his life. So, uh, you know, there's some humor in the book, too. But um, very, he, he fought in one of the bloodiest, in fact, his unit lost this is part of the, um, the New York National Guard. His unit lost 107th Infantry, more men than any other unit in the entire war. This is um, during the breaking of the Hindenburg Line. And during that event, he won the Distinguished Service Cross for Valor. So um, he was a war hero. Oh, what struck me about so much, many of the stories was the gratitude and connection that people who were not born in this country have towards it that exceeds that of some of the people who were born here. Oh, definitely. But, you know, Carl, when you talk about um, Bright Beacon of Hope, you have to remember what these immigrants were doing when they got here. The 12 guys in my book were, I'm trying to think of all their jobs, one of them was basically um, digging ditches and gardens on a rich man's estate. There were two career soldiers, um, so they one of them enlisted in the Marines. Um, Epifanio, as I said, worked for the Department of Sanitation. Um, Meyer Epstein uh, worked 
had a horse and cart in New York. One of the other guys worked on a railroad. Um, one of the other guys was a uh, homesteader and worked as a hired hand on farms in the Midwest. These were backbreaking, thankless jobs. I mean, these guys were the muscle, the brute force, and got no respect. Uh, you know, they were dirty immigrants, basically, and they were treated that way. And they were, there was a lot of prejudice then as there is now against immigrants. A lot of um, aspersions cast on their honesty, their bravery, their ability, their intelligence. Uh, so, bright beacon of hope, yes, but these guys were not rewarded with riches. And they were not rewarded with great opportunities either better opportunities than they had in their countries of origin, for sure. That's why they came here. But they did not have it easy. And the thing that struck me is, in the case of the Italians and the Poles and the Jews, so we're talking about half the immigrant population of the Ellis Island generation, they had no tradition of strong national loyalty. Jews had no homeland of their own then, of course. Italian Italy was unified in the 1860s, but it was then and remains very um, divided regionally and provincially. Italians tend to be loyal to their village, uh, their family, their church, not really to their nation. And Poland was divided between Austria, Prussia, and Russia. So this is a country without a government, without independence. And yet, all three of these groups transferred their loyalty very quickly and very courageously to their adopted country. To me, the question is why? You know, why did they fight so bravely? Um, why did they become Americans so willingly and, and so valorously um, in battle? And I don't really have a simple answer for that. I think some of it is unit loyalty. You get drafted, you get thrown in with a bunch of other guys from all over the country, and you uh, become a soldier, and you become loyal to your platoon. Um, I think some of it was really love of America based on, you know, the opportunities, the possibility. I think a lot of it was the future. I think people back then were much more future-oriented than we are. I think we tend to kind of look to the present, you know, what, do I, what am I getting now? They were looking at the opportunities that their children and grandchildren would get. And, and I think to some extent that's still true for immigrants to this country. You know, if they were digging ditches, their children would be teachers or doctors. Um, so I think that was part of what they were fighting for. And I also think that they, um, you know, America, for all of the, of all the, all the roadblocks it put in the way and still puts in the way of immigrants, um, is also a very welcoming country. And um, they could, they, once they became citizens, they could vote. I think they felt that they were definitely um, better nourished, better cared for, um, part of communities in which there was some hope. I think hope is a, is a big part of it. But I, I also think there's some imponderable that, you know, it's a great country. We love it. And um, that love blossomed very quickly for all the guys I'm talking about and remains very, very strong in their families. I understand the book also looks into the story of some of the conscientious objectors mm -hmm. that were also immigrants. The conscientious objectors that I write about in my book were actually not immigrants. They were part of a German-speaking 
religious sect called Hutterites, and they were Anabaptists, which means they believed in adult baptism. And they also, they had two other beliefs that were unique to them. One was that they did not serve in the militaries of the countries in which they lived, and the second was that they lived communally. They basically pooled their resources. Even though the three young men whose stories I tell in the book were not immigrants, I include them because they never assimilated. They never spoke. They spoke English, but very in a very limited way. They lived apart. So basically, their communities were like permanent immigrant communities. They lived in South Dakota on a communal farm near Freeman. They worshipped in German. They spoke German with each other. This was a very tight-knit, very self-regarding community. You know, when you think about it, they were really fundamentalist Christian communists and pacifists. And I know it's kind of a lot of labels to put all together, but that's what they were. And they don't, I've met some of their descendants and they're not real pleased at being described that way, but they agree. Those, those, those are their beliefs. And for those beliefs, especially to the pacifism and their clinging to their German culture, their German language, they were mercilessly persecuted. So the story that I tell, these are the Hofer brothers and Jacob Wiff, was that they were inducted into the army in the spring of 1918. And when they received their call-up notices, they consulted with their church elders, and they were advised to report to Fort Lewis, then called Camp Lewis, right near Seattle. And But once they got there, not to serve. They wouldn't put on the uniform. They wouldn't carry a gun. They wouldn't train. They would just refuse. And that's what they did. And it was a, so from that decision ensued a tragic chain of events. They, they were beaten up, and they had their beards cut on the train going out from South Dakota to Fort Lewis. Once they got there, when they refused to sign their papers, they were put in um, the clink, basically. The court-martial happened soon afterwards, and they were sentenced to 20 years in Alcatraz, 20 years of hard labor. Well, in the course of that sentence and that jail term, they were tortured. There's really no other word for it. And, you know, we kind of think, oh, things like waterboarding and so on are occurrence, you know, practices that, that have been invented in the evil imagination of the 21st century. But in fact, waterboarding existed back then, and, and Hutterite and Mennonite conscientious objectors were also waterboarded. These guys were had their wrists bound together, and they were suspended from the ceilings of their cells. They were left out in the cold with hardly any clothes on, and... Um, Two of them died in the course of their prison um, sentence. Actually, the war had ended. Now I need to revise. There were actually four of them. There were three Hofer brothers and Jacob Wiff. So there were four, and two of them died. One of the Hofer brothers um, survived and went home to South Dakota, and Jacob Wiff also survived. So this was an extreme example of the abuse um, visited on conscientious objectors during World War One, but not unique. Um, there were many, many other stories of guys who refused to serve who were um, basically tortured. And um, uh, 
you know, part of the problem was there was huge, huge xenophobia, huge um, government-sponsored hatred of all things German. Um, you know, you couldn't. Sp it was illegal to speak German in public. People who had German names changed them. German books were burned. German plays were not performed. Beethoven was not performed. So that was part of it. The other part was that the government policy toward conscientious objectors was amorphous. It was unformulated. There was some suggestion that they should be allowed to do alternative service, non-military service, but the way that policy was implemented was left in the hands of um, the commanders of the boot camps, and some of them were sadistic and basically treated their men like hell, and that's what happened with these guys. Uh, the only positive outcome of this story was that the treatment of conscientious objectors was much more humane than the Second World War. And I think that humanity, in some ways, was a result of the tragedies that happened during the First World War. The so-called peace churches were invited, or at least included, in government decisions. And it wasn't easy to be a CO in World War II, but it was possible to obey your conscience and not be tortured. Uh, of all the many stories that are told through your book, which one's your favorite? Hmm. Well, I think my favorite for pure valor would have to be Mati Kosak. He was um, Slovak in his origins. He was a career Marine. Um, he enlisted soon after he came to this country as a young man. This was just kind of a natural soldier. The things he did were just beyond my imagination. Um, just a guy who had no fear. He was in the um, he was at a battle called Soissons, which is part of the Aisne Marne offensive, and that was in July of 1918. And he was separated from his um, unit, and he basically took charge of a group of I think there were Senegalese soldiers who were fighting with the French, and managed to lead them very effectively and then took out two German machine gun nests single-handedly and that was um, uh, that won him membership in something that was called the solo club that was what their the name of their informal name for people who to, took out German machine gun nests alone and I have some pictures of him he just he just looks the part swaggering you know, you could just tell he was just a real Marine. He just loved what he did. He was a born warrior. One of the interesting things about him that I discovered in interviewing his family, and, and I did interview the families of all the guys in the book, um, he'd had no direct descendants, but I was able to talk with um, some descendants of one of his cousins. Turns out, this guy, as I said, won two medals of honor, one from the Army, one for the Navy, one from the Navy for his bravery. But his uncle was fighting with the Austrian army. Of course, Slovakia then was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. His uncle was drafted. So here are these relatives, an uncle and a nephew, fighting on opposite sides of the same war. To me, that really that really crystallizes the immigrant experience in the war. Um, one of the themes of, of your book that I found the most fascinating was that it was not easy to gain passage from the old world to the new world. And once they got there, what their service in this particular war meant was essentially 
being packed back up into the same or similar ships that they came to this country in, go back to the country that they came from, and sometimes to have to fight against the people that they lived with. Um, would you like to say something about that? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Carl, about this um, double voyage, the voyage back. The thing to remember is that you know, the major powers in that war reflected almost all of the immigrant groups in the country, at the exception of Asians and Central Americans. This was a war that was fought on the territory and by the peoples uh, who made America. Both sides, Germans, you know, German Americans were our largest group back then. Um, obviously, Anglo Saxons, you know, Russians, Poles, um, Italians, all involved, intimately involved in that war. The other thing to keep in mind is that most of the guys I wrote about and most of their families told me a major reason for immigration was so that their young men would not have to be in the military. Norway had a mandatory draft back then. Same for Italy, same for Russia. The Russian draft was particularly onerous for Jews. Now, Poland, as I said, was, was part of um, Prussia and Russia. So if you were 18 years old and living in those countries back in the early 20th century and you were male, you were drafted. America had no draft. There had been a draft in the Civil War. There was no draft between the Civil War and the First World War. So the assumption was they were coming here not only for freedom, not only for opportunity, but to have their young men um, not be subject to a military draft. Lo and behold, the U.S. declares war on Germany in April of 1917. Six weeks later, Congress enacted a draft, and in June of 1917, every American between the ages of 21 and 30 has to register. So the draft is on, and as you said, they're shipped back, often in, in, in boats that have been used for immigration. So, And the irony was not lost on them. But the happy side, those who survived, you know, great jubilation coming back. And, you know, as, as I said earlier in the interview, not only jubilation, but the sense of belonging now. You know, they were real Americans. They were, they were in many cases, war heroes. But, yeah, that, that voyage back and forth was definitely the, one of the iconic experiences of the lives of these people. Reading the book, it's obvious that libraries and archives and historical societies have played a huge role in your research for the book. Would you like to comment on uh, some of the societies that helped and what we can do as librarians to facilitate the sort of research that you need to do? Mm -hmm. Pretty much every library I visited um, was was great. There's World War One stuff everywhere. Some I just stumbled on. I was in Los Angeles just because one of my kids was in college there and I was visiting her. Went to UCLA Library, just happened in and found some great stuff. Same was true in New York, New York Public Library, the Library of Fordham University, University of Washington Library had great stuff. But I would say the absolute mother load for me, and I'm sure all other researchers of this period would agree, is the National Archives in Washington, D.C., I'll also put in one other, which is the Immigration History Research Library, which is part of the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. So kudos to those 
archives and the archivists and librarians that run them. I guess my only, it's not really a caveat, but it's just a comment, really. You know, I think that readers really respond to books of popular history like this, where they can follow a major event by uh, really sinking their teeth into the lives of an individual, somebody who they get to know, the way you get to know a character in a novel. So you care about Epiphanio and what happens to him in battle and how he goes prospecting for gold. You care about Samuel Goldberg and, you know, how he is a Jew in the cavalry and some of the anti-Semitism that he faces. You care about Monty Cossack and his incredible bravery. Finding those stories is very difficult. And I think often archives could make things easier for us if they looked for that kind of material. You know, often, for example, at the Immigration History Research Center, there's, there was a character, there was, there was a, a woman named Rose Zwerk, I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong, she was Polish, who was very involved in teaching Polish soldiers English and went on to become a writer and wrote short stories. Interesting person, she didn't end up in the book, but that center had some of her papers. And I think there's probably lots of hidden gems like that, and maybe even more valuable than that, where if you knew where to look, you could find life stories that would bring the past alive, that would really bring into focus a full life in all its complexity, not just letters, not just diaries, but um, interviews and scrapbooks and so on and so forth. And I think that often this material exists in archives, but it's just kind of dumped in with lots of other stuff. It's hard to access it. It's hard to know where it is. And I think sometimes the archivists don't realize what they have some of the riches that are in their position and how writers in particular or researchers can use it. You know, what particular collections would would appeal to somebody who wanted to write about the immigrant experience in World War One? Is there somebody they really have in that depth and richness that will um, that will really make a narrative come to life? It's stuff like that that I think if archivists were a little bit more aware of um, the, the end users, it just might be that much more valuable. You know, I hate to I hate to complain because I think I you know I survive as a writer on the generosity and then the um, commitment of of librarians and archivists. But just just one more step that I think would make my life um, that much more rewarding. But anyway, you know, shout out to all librarians everywhere. So, I'd just like to say, finding aids, important stuff. Mm, indeed. Well, um, Mr. Klaskin, thank you very much for okay. being on The Silverfish. And you thanks for talking with us today. All right. My pleasure. This edition of The Silverfish Podcast is dedicated to the memory of Frank Buckles with his passing the war to end all wars has finally come to a close.